You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 93. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. In our Your Stock Our Take segment, we answer two listener questions. The first on Absolute Software Corporation, symbol ABT on the TSX, a provider of SaaS or software as a service-based endpoint security and data risk management solutions. A listener asks us our take on this cash-rich, profitable small-cap stock. Our second Your Stock Our Take of the Week is on Uber Technology, Inc., symbol U-B-E-R on the New York Stock Exchange, the first and largest ride-sharing company in the world. The company finally, and I mean finally, is coming to our hometown of Vancouver, and we review the business and its potential investment merits with the stock still trading below its IPO price. Our star of the week is China Jojo Drugstores, Inc., symbol C-J-J-D on the NASDAQ, a retailer and distributor of pharmaceutical and other healthcare products typically found in retail pharmacies within China. The stock is up around 20% in the last week alone and 67% in the past three months. Recent gains appear to be driven by the outbreak of the coronavirus in country. We let you know if this is sustainable. Well, let's get into our show this week. Uh, I'd like to welcome our, my co-hosts, Brennan and Aaron. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. How are you, Ryan? How are you, Brennan? Yeah, I'm doing well. Doing very well. I am doing very well. Very well. I noted that uh, you uh, you sent over an article this week uh, that you might want to chat about at the start of the uh, of this podcast this week. Do you want to you want to elaborate on that? Uh, sure. So. It's just an article that I saw on, we're heading into RSP season, so a lot of people start thinking about contributions to their RSP and their TFSA. I saw an article on BNN yesterday um, about a survey that was done of Canadians that said one in four Canadians didn't know the difference between an RSP and a TFSA. So I suppose the positive take from that is that 75% uh, of Canadians polled anyways do know the difference, but I do think that there's a lot of misunderstandings. Most of the people that I talk to don't really understand most of the differences. They may understand that it's a different type of account um, with pros and cons to each, but they don't understand all of the differences. So I figured that that was um, really a good segue into just kind of discussing some of the differences. So uh, should I, I'll just get into it or does anybody want yeah, to ask me not? a question why, sure why so not? we can get an answer the question essentially i mean it's there's a number of different uh, this is between the two but you know, yeah yeah so start for sure. yeah yeah so the tfsa tax-free savings account a lot of people hear the word savings and they think of it as essentially like a a cash savings account like your bank account uh really what it is though is it's an investing account much like the rsp so the government of canada uh started the tfsa 
Um, I don't remember what the exact year was when that started, but I think it was actually the fifties. Was it not the like it TFSA, was a, not the RSP? Oh, the T- oh, I thought nine. it was an RSP. Oh, nine, sorry, oh, nine, sorry, I'm staring yeah, off into space. Oh nine, yeah. oh nine. So yeah. the whole okay, point good, of the thanks. TFSA and the RSP is that it gives people a tax advantaged account to um, build up a portfolio of investments or savings that they can then use primarily for retirement. So the big difference between the two uh, is that. It really comes down to flexibility, but then also what the tax advantage is. So I'm going to start with the tax advantage. So the RSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan, is is it's a tax-deferred account. So essentially what you do is you're contributing to that account with tax-free dollars. So um, if you contribute to an RSP, you'll get a, you'll get a tax rebate typically or a tax um, return typically from the CRA. Uh, they'll give you... Uh, money back on taxes that you paid because essentially you're paying with pre-tax dollars. So uh, pre-tax dollars go into the RSP. Then within the RSP, you can do different things. You can just keep it in cash. You can invest it in mutual funds. You can invest it in individual stocks with not many limitations. And it will continue to, uh, returns will continue to compound over time um, on a tax deferred basis. So you won't pay any tax on your funds while they are growing in your RSP. Where you get taxed, where where the tax man lines up and wants to take his share is when you make withdrawals from your RSP. So if you need to take money out of your RSP RSP for any reason, um, it will be taxed as regular income in that year. So if you build up a million dollar RSP and you withdraw it all in one year, uh, the the government will essentially say you made a million plus dollars in income that year and, and tax you at that rate. So it's a great way to allow your savings to compound over a period of time, um, tax deferred, but you do eventually have to pay the tax. Now, there are, when you retire, there are ways to roll that over into something called an RRIF so that you're only actually paying taxes on the amount that you withdraw, small amounts that you withdraw over the course of a year. Um, so that's tax deferred. You you contribute with tax free dollars with before tax dollars, sorry, and then you pay the tax when you withdraw your money. Um, the TFSA tax free savings account is essentially the opposite of that. It's a, it, it is a tax free account. So you don't get any type of tax benefit to your contribution. So you just contribute to your TFSA with regular tax dollars uh, or after tax dollars. So you you make your money from your job, you pay tax on that with whatever is left, you can contribute to a TFSA. But once you put your money in the TFSA, it is truly tax-free. So none of the none of the returns you generate in your TFSA or reinvest are taxed while it's in the TFSA. And in addition, when you make a withdrawal, that is not taxed. So it's it's a true tax-free account. Um, and the difference is, is the difference really is just the point of time that the tax occurs when you actually incur uh, an income tax expense. So with RSP, it's when you make the withdrawal. With TFSA, it's before you make the contribution. So that's that's basically the main difference. Um, what I really like about the TFSA is that its structure does give it really great flexibility. So you're able to pull money out. If you put money in your TFSA and you allow it to grow for a period of time and you need it for any purpose, you're able to pull that money out um, and then use it, not have to worry about tax in that particular year. You're also able to um, you're also able to recontribute that 
money um, that you pulled out in the next year. So once as you as your TFSA grows over time, and a lot of that growth may come from returns, um, your allowable contribution limit increases. So if I build my TFSA up through contributions, but primarily returns to say half a million dollars, uh, and then I withdraw all that with that $500,000, um, I can recontribute $500,000 again next year and and still have all of the same tax benefits. So it does really give you excellent flexibility there. There's no answer to which one is better or worse. One thing that I don't like about the RRSP is that you're not going to get capital gains treatment um, when you make withdrawals. So if, for example, you invest in a company, one of the one of Keystone small cap picks in a regular investing account, and um, that company does great, it gets two, three, four hundred percent return. If you're in a regular taxable account and you withdraw it, you have to pay tax, but you only have to pay tax on 50% of the capital gain. That's capital gains treatment, tax treatment. Whereas with the RSP, you don't get that capital gains tax treatment. Um, when you withdraw it, it is just taxed as regular income. So if you're a growth investor, that makes the RSP somewhat less attractive. Of course, if you're compounding great returns over time, then then the tax deferral can can make up for that difference. But you know, I like them both. I really like the TFSA for its flexibility and its simplicity. Uh, the only problem is that you can only you can only contribute uh, what is it about um, fifty five hundred a year right now to the TFSA. Yeah, but that essentially sums them up. Yeah, yeah. I mean the. For me, the flexibility is is huge in the TFSA. Uh, it's it's great uh, for a starting point for investors to set up a self directed stock investing account and invest that way. It is is a great way to do it. Don't use it as just a savings account. Use it as an investment account. Buy stocks or buy a basket of stocks in there through a low cost ETF. It is such a great way to start in the uh, start your investing career. Uh, really, like your, your lifelong investment journey that you're going to start. Um, I, the contribution amount is the limiting factor there. Um, we would love to see it increased. And really, I was disgusted when the liberals basically cut the annual contribution in half from where the conservatives had upped it to uh, the $10,000 range. Um, and it was even more disgusting to see Trudeau classify it, basically uh, the TFSA as a tool for the rich, which for me couldn't be farther from the truth. The, the TFSA, uh, for the actual rich in this country, uh, because the contribution limit is relatively low, it can be a rounding error in most of their portfolios. For the average Canadian being able to contribute five or 10000 into that, put that money into a very flexible tax-free investment vehicle where they can set up a self-directed account and invest in stocks um, is very powerful for them and is very useful for the average Canadian investor, not for the rich or the ultra-rich or anything like that. So to classify it as a tool for the rich and we're going to cut it that way was uh, frankly a disservice to the average Canadian, not to rich Canadians, like it was, uh, it was it was classified that way at the time, and I really, uh, you know, I'd love to see it increase the limit on that. It would be so. Great. No, well, anybody a- who is investing, I'll just say this: anybody yeah, cool. who is investing needs to maximize their TFSA. Yeah, I mean, if you are Without investing a in a regular account and you don't have money in your TFSA, 
you need to maximize your TFSA. The RSP yeah. being a longer term account, there are some arguments where um, you, you don't necessarily have to maximize that. Uh, it's a good idea to take some advantage of it. But the TFSA, just given its flexibility, there's no reason to pick the TFSA over a uh, or pick a regular investing taxable investing account over no. the TFSA unless you are an uh, an extremely active trader. Because if you trade enough and that I essentially mean day trading, um, you can be disqualified. You can be charged taxes on the TFSA. And I don't know where the Canada Revenue Agency sets the bar where they differentiate between investors and traders. Um, but if you are a very active trader, um, then the yeah. TFSA might not be for you. But that's certainly not an issue for anybody following Keystone's research. We would be far. And we're, and, and we're not tax experts and we wouldn't pretend to be in that respect. But I think part of the, the definition between, you know, defining somebody as a, a trader would be also your primary source of income is likely coming from that. You know, if you have a day job and you're investing, you're likely not going to get singled out unless you're, you know, the biggest portion of your income is coming from day trading. So for our clients, that would never be an issue in most cases, I would say. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Brendan, you had a question. Yeah, that sorry. I cut you off. Yeah, yeah. So I had a quick question. No worries, no worries. So would you guys agree that you might want to place more of your higher risk investments in a TFSA compared to, you know, an RRSP? Like, what's your guys' take on that? I think that it depends. It depends on how you classify, how you how you define high risk. I mean, when I hear the word high risk, it can mean different things to different people. So a lot of people will say, oh, my high risk investment, these are my um, TSX venture junior mining companies or companies that are, you know, not producing profit or revenue. And that's my high risk portfolio. Um, if that's how you define high risk, then I would definitely say, well, I would say don't put them in either. Don't put them in any account. Just don't buy them. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I look at it more from a perspective of growth. Uh, I find that the TFSA is a very, very powerful tool when you're generating a lot of capital gains. Um, whereas the yeah. the RSP seems to be a more powerful tool for investments that are longer term investments where you're generating a lot of income. So if you have, say, dividend stocks, I mean, bonds for sure, um, you know, government of Canada bonds or, or government bonds, I would I would definitely say they'd be more appropriate for a TFSA because uh, bond interest income is just taxed at the regular rate anyways. So there's not any disadvantage to the tax, tax structure when you do withdraw from an RSP. Um, whereas when you're generating a lot of big capital gains, uh, that can that can be a factor with the RSP. Then the TFSA is a is is a better structure. But I mean, at the end of the day, we always say don't overthink it. I like the TFSA um, as a as 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 a home to my more growth oriented investments. But the RSP has has is, is a great tool as well. And um, I would say don't overthink it. And if you have, if you can contribute to both, contribute to both. Um, if not then you know you can divide it up or or you could just pick one but my, my preference is usually the the tfsa it it, it but it is going to depend for every, on on specific situations of every investor so that may not apply to everybody yeah the funny thing is brennan asked me that right before we went on air here and uh i basically said exactly the same thing when you talk about when you use the word high risk that is where my mind goes immediately and uh 
like we are looking for growth in all the investments that we recommend to our clients. But potentially for a TFSA, it's not necessarily higher risk, just the more growthier names within our portfolio that we might uh, position in a TFSA. Uh, but when we think of higher risk, like, you know, if you look at, and Aaron said, like those TSX, those mining companies, they just wouldn't be part of our portfolio to begin with. So uh, higher risk within the contest potentially of our um, environment or universe of the coverage that we're looking at, but we would more define those as just more growth oriented names rather than just high risk. Uh, you we think that you know people associate risk with return the higher risk you take the higher potential return um again the national post came out with an article this uh past just at the start of this year looked at the best performing stock over the past decade on the tsx so of all stocks in canada and it was the boyd group Uh, again our clients are very familiar with the company returning 4,400 plus percent over that 10-year period. That would be a stock. It fixes automobiles. That's what the business is. They car repair, automobile repair. You would not consider that when you started investing in that. We started investing it 12 years ago, a um, high-risk type investment. But, uh, you know, it produced those the best gains of any company out there. We believe you don't have to take that incredibly high risk to produce tremendously high gains. So was Boyd a high risk, uh, you know, 12 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago and three years ago and two years ago, one year ago when we invested in it, we recommended investing in it. Uh, We wouldn't really classify it as that, but it produced the high returns that people are looking for. We would have just called it a growthier name and it would have been perfect investment for the TFSA over that period. So hopefully yeah, it would have been sense. a nice one to have in your portfolio since 2009. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. without a doubt. Again, nice one. The best stock to have over that period, which is uh, uh, is great. I note also in that article, uh, they had uh, about six stocks that they profiled, top six or five or six stocks. Uh, I believe the third ranked stock, or either third or fourth, was also Eng House, which is also a recommendation in our Canadian growth stock universe. So that 10-year period, uh, we had uh, two of the top four companies on the entire uh, Toronto exchange. So there's, uh, we'll toot our horns on that one. We have to sometimes, right? So let's get into the show. Aaron, or did you have any more questions? Was there anything else we wanted to discuss about the TFSA uh, RSP issue? No? I think we're good. We're good. Okay. Let's get into the show. Uh, our first Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock. In a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Is on Absolute Software Corporation, symbol ABT on the TSX. Currently trades just over $9, about a $380 million market cap. What does the company do? Well, Absolute Software is a provider of SaaS or software as a service based endpoint security and data risk management solutions. Absolute sells to commercial, healthcare, education, and government customers. Company has over 20,000 customers globally and actively protects around 6 million customer devices. Now, let's look at the most recent quarter. Uh, revenues for Q1, I believe, were up around 6% to $25.7 million. Adjusted EBITDA pre-IFRS 16 was about $6.6 million. Uh, that is 60% growth over the $4.1 million we saw last year. Net income 
uh, went up over 173% uh, to 3.5 million from 1.3 last year. So tremendous growth in EBITDA and net income, only 6% growth in total revenue. Now at present, the growth is likely to be driven by PC vendor shipments going forward, the growth in terms of revenue. Now, based on Gartner's estimates of worldwide PC shipments, they grew about 2.3% year over year in the fourth quarter of 2019. That is the third consecutive quarter of rather modest growth. Over the past four years, for example, in this business in Absolute Software's business, total revenue growth, not annual revenue growth, but total revenue growth over four years was only 11%, just over 11%. And the 2020 guidance for revenue implies about 4.1 to 7.2% revenue growth. Now we'd say Absolute Software is a good business with a, a great balance sheet, great cash rich balance sheet. It pays a decent 3.5% dividend yield. Now, for those happy with that dividend and a modest mid to single digit level of growth, uh, it is an option. Um, perhaps management makes an acquisition with some of the cash on hand, but we do not see prices right now of some of the targets to be conducive of this in its primary space. Now, we monitor the stock and we will be featuring it in our upcoming profitable uh, Canadian cash rich small cap report. But we would like to see more revenue growth before we recommended it in the near term. I do note that the stock at current levels is a potential takeover target with its uh, strong balance sheet. But we do not invest on companies just because they may look at look like a takeover target. Absolutely. And and Absolute Software is a company that we have monitored for going several years back in our income research because it does pay that nice dividend yield of about mm -hmm. 3.5%. So you do get that dividend yield, but just, I mean, just to reiterate what you said, Ron, the growth has not been great. No. And that's what, that's what, uh, that's what stopped us from recommending the company is we want to see a business that's going to be able to grow the revenue, grow the cash flow per share and earnings per share um, more consistently. It doesn't necessarily have to be consistent every quarter, but we want to see a trend of growing revenue and earnings and cash flow per share, because that is what is going to drive the, the stock price higher. So uh, decent company, as you said, but it's not something that I plan on necessarily recommending in the near future. Yeah. And, and like we said, there's, you know, it's just, lo you know, low single digit revenue, you know, mid digit, single digit revenue growth. Uh, you saw more growth in net income, but is that really sustainable when you're just growing the top line at 5%, for example? Uh, we don't think so over the long term. There could be an acquisition Although in its space, in the you know the security space, cybersecurity, all of that, in the securing devices, uh, prices right now are likely at a premium. So it may be difficult to deploy some of that cash that's there right now to grow via that route. So a little more growth is what we would look like uh, look at uh, before Absolute Software really became of interest to us. So let's look at our second your stock our take. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Uh, it's on Uber Technologies, Inc., symbol U-B-E-R in the New York Stock Exchange. Aaron, that is yours. Excellent. So we got an email from Tim. He said that he's excited Uber's up and running in Vancouver. He wants to know our take on the company as an investment. 
Uber is trading right now at a price of $36.70. It has a market capitalization of about $63 billion. And Uber is known as the first and largest ride-sharing company in the world. The company is based in San Francisco and serves 91 million users in over 63 companies. Although Uber is best known for its ride-sharing app, which matches riders with drivers, the company also connects restaurants with hungry consumers via its Uber Eats application. Uber also has other service options it is developing, which which could eventually connect its users with autonomous vehicles, delivery via drones, and Uber Elevate, which would provide aerial ride-sharing. Starting with a little history, Uber has been operating since 2010, but it just started trading as a public company in May of 2019. Uber's IPO has not been a success, at least so far. The stock IPO'd at a price of $45 per share, and over the subsequent six months, it's declined 42% uh, to hit a low of $26 per share. The stock has since recovered partially from its low point and today is trading at about $37, but still below its IPO price. This is also during a period where the overall market across North America has been very strong, so major underperformance from the company uh, since its IPO. Full disclosure, I am a customer of Uber. I'm also very excited to finally see the app working in Vancouver. I haven't used it here yet, but I use it a lot when I travel, and from a customer perspective, I think the app is great. However, today I'm not evaluating Uber as a service, I'm evaluating the stock as an investment. And to do that, I need to look at the financial performance and financial condition of the company. So Uber does not have much of a history as a public company, but they did release their Q3 2019 results on November 9th. Revenue growth was very strong, increasing 30% to $3.8 billion. However, the company is not profitable. They reported a net loss of $1.16 billion in the quarter. They also burned through $878 million in cash flow for Q3 and $3.2 billion in cash flow over the last quarter, four quarters. So burning through over $3 billion in cash over the last year. Uber does have a large cash balance of $12.6 billion and total debt of around $7.5 billion. Our take is that Uber is not an investable company for Keystone right now. We need to see that the company can be profitable and Uber's huge cash burn signals a major risk to us. This doesn't mean that the company won't end up doing well long term. I certainly hope it does. As I said, I love the ride sharing app and I hope it continues to be a success. However, as an investment, we have no way of knowing when the company will break in a profit. There's really no sign of that right now. The fact is that Uber has not yet proven a profitable business market, profitable business model. Clearly, the market also has concerns given the very poor performance of the company's stock since the IPO. Now, Uber does have cash of $12 billion, which gives it a decent amount of runway. But still, with a cash burn of over $3 billion in the last 12 months, they're going to need to reduce their operating losses and start making progress towards profitability. If this doesn't happen, then it's very likely that investors will be stuck with more losses. We think that there are better companies out there for investors, companies with proven profitable business models, and we would not be investors in Uber right now. Yeah, that's quite the burn rate that uh, Uber's got. I like the analogy almost where Uber kind of reminds me of that college athlete with high prospects, you know, going to the going to the show, the big leagues, um, but they still haven't lived up to the name yet. Um, you know, and I guess like even looking at that burn rate right now, um, the CEO made comments 
I, I don't know how long ago, uh, but I believe it was late 2019. He said essentially that cars are to us what books are to Amazon. So it's almost like that, the visions of grandeur um, where, you know, they've got so much, uh, you know, they're almost drowning in opportunity, I guess, which is kind of scary from an investment perspective, uh, in my opinion, at least. Again, like, you know, Uber might be able to grow into a, you know, a wonderful, profitable business. But right now, um, it's definitely hard to say which way it'll go. Well, they have to prove a profitable business model and, and they just they haven't done it. They've proven that they can build a great product. They've proven that they can generate a lot of revenue from the product. Uh, they have not proven that um, they can actually make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, like you, I use it all the time. We use it all the time on the road. And, you know, it's a great service. Uh, we'd like to see even more just even more of a progression towards profitability would be. Uh, more of something that we'd love to see uh, as a great start for this business. And we'll continue to monitor it because, you know, you love to see those companies that you use within your portfolio. And we use Uber all the time. Uh, if you can match that with, you know, a decent valuation or a company that is moving towards profitability and you can project a valuation going forward, that would be great. I do know, though, on a personal level that my Uber app was actually compromised. So I had to actually... Yeah, I went through. It is difficult to get a hold of them, so uh, I do say that. But you know, when we did use it, my app wasn't compromised. You're not standing by the customer service. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not so much. But I mean, uh, you know, I when I did use the app, it was so super simple to use, and also just you know, because we haven't had it in Vancouver. uh, You know, when we go downtown, we're traveling around a little bit, and you see, you know, versus. The traditional cab, uh, it is, you know, night and day better. I would use it a hundred times over, over a traditional cab, sorry to say, in this city, but that's the way my experience has been good, other than the compromising in my app, right? Yeah, when I made my trip down to Vancouver, uh, I was surprised like that you guys didn't have it yet. Um, you want to know, I'm, I'm not sorry to, to, to say it, and, and that's not a slight against necessarily no. against the cab industry even, but people talk about, potential job losses but without competition um industries like like the taxi industry never have to evolve and you know there used to be blockbuster stores all over the city as well and then streaming came along and digital came along and that started to disappear but should we have just you know used regulation to 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 stop the innovation of, of streaming services so that companies like Blockbuster could continue to to, to exist. I, I don't believe in that. I believe in progress. I believe in innovation. And we have to manage yeah. it, obviously. But the taxi industry has um, an opportunity to evolve. And I think to an extent they have. I mean, previous to Uber, they, they had no apps. And, and now taxi industry has, you know, apps that you can use to you know track the ride and 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 it's it's an improvement and i'll say that i was in london uh about a year and a half ago and they have uber in london but their their taxi industry and their taxi apps um really provided a great service so we ended up using you know taxis a lot of the time yeah i know you definitely do have to evolve and the uber eats service like creates an opportunity for small businesses restaurants and all that it's a great opportunity for them to sell more through delivery where they didn't have delivery in the past potentially so you know there's opportunities for uh with new technology too as well so it's not just crushing jobs in all areas right so let's look at our weekly star from our stars and dogs segment it's time for this week's star star, star. star. 
uh, China Jojo Drugstores Inc. Symbol CJ or CJJD on the NASDAQ. I'm going to let you take that, Brennan. Thank you. Okay, so uh, China Jojo Drugstores Inc. CJJD on the NASDAQ, like you said, Ryan, currently trading at a price of $2.08 US and has a market cap of $63 million. So the company is a retailer and distributor of pharmaceutical and other healthcare products, typically found in retail pharmacies in China, and it operates around 129 retail pharmacies. Uh, The company currently operates in four business segments. Uh, The first is retail drugstores, which is its largest, uh, online pharmacy, wholesale businesses, as well as farming and selling herbs used for traditional Chinese medicine. The stock was up around 20% in the last week and up 67% in the past three months. Um, And what's driving it here? On November 14th, 2019, the company reported its Q2 2019 financial results. Uh, Since this news release, the company's share price is up over 60%. So taking a look at these results, this is for Q2 2019, uh, and bear in mind all in US. Uh, Revenue increased around 3.5% to 28 million compared to the same quarter last year. EBITDA improved slightly to a loss of 1 million compared to a loss of 1.4 million for the same quarter last year. And fully diluted earnings per share also improved to a loss of 4 cents per share compared to a loss of 6 cents for Q2 2018. Now, the question here is whether the upward share price movement over the past three months is justified by these results. Revenue has been slowly increasing over time, and its 12 trailing month sales figure is up around 10% year over year. Despite recent revenue growth, uh, it has been a bumpy ride for the business, and they are still very far from posting consistent profitability or even positive EBITDA. Uh, Even if we do look back a couple years to see if the company has made any progress, they're still posting relatively similar profit and EBITDA figures. Looking at the company's balance sheet, they do have a net debt position of around 18.7 million and are quite levered with a debt to equity ratio of 1.67. Considering the company has negative EBITDA, this large debt balance could definitely be a hindrance going forward. I personally do not believe that this large share price increase is alone justified by the company's financials and has further been propelled by the recent outbreak of the coronavirus. We have seen the Chinese markets down in the last few weeks due to the coronavirus scare, but analysts have noted the wider healthcare sector could benefit from higher demand for products and services related to prevention and diagnosis of viral diseases with similar symptoms. And uh, from the articles that I read, it is right now flu season in China. Um, So now it it must be emphasized that uh, this is, if, if this is what has been propelling the stock higher, it is completely speculative in nature and certainly not something to justify an investment decision on. Uh, you know, no one truly knows if this is going to increase the demand for any of their products going forward. Uh, so this company is clearly far from meeting our investment criteria uh, as they have mediocre financials and a debt-heavy balance sheet. But given the company's recent share price performance over the past week and month, make it our star of the week. Yeah, and I, I would be blunt on this one. Um, you know, I haven't studied or looked into the company greatly, but given the revenue profile of low single-digit growth in the last quarter, 
um, relatively high debt levels, not profitable. It would be one we wouldn't touch with the proverbial 10-foot pole, to be honest. And in the area of the world that it operates in, uh, we can't always trust the accounting that comes out of there. So, it would, you know, just to be blunt on the company, 67% gain, I think you said, Brennan, in the past uh, three months. Yep. Uh, that would be sending warning signs to me uh, in this company uh, and a 20% jump in the last week. Looks like based on a lot of speculation, there's not profitability driving this business. It is in a high-risk area. So, it, yeah, it would be a company that we would avoid. Aaron? Oh, absolutely. And I'll just, I mean, the debt, the lack of profitability, um, the big move up on purely on speculation. I mean, we don't know if their products are, are going to benefit in any way, shape or form from the coronavirus. We had a client ask us um, on one of our, our weekly chat sessions yesterday about how to invest around events like the coronavirus. And it's, it's certainly a very reasonable question, and we're glad to, to get them because it gives us an opportunity to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that generally you just you, you don't um, you 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 build you look to build a port. The way to, to have a, a successful to employ a successful investment strategy is to build a portfolio of profitable growing companies that are serving markets that have a future and will support uh, future growth for that company and to pay uh, go with companies that have reasonable financial leverage or no debt and that you can purchase at an attractive price and you build a portfolio like that consisting of 15 or so stocks in your actively managed stock portfolio you look um, with a minimum time horizon on each stock of one to three years and you just you just ignore a lot of the short-term um, a lot of the short-term noise and part of the question was well how what happened to the market during you know the SARS outbreak I don't remember what happened but obviously the market got through it just fine and you know profitable growth oriented companies um, went on to execute their strategies just fine so when yeah. it comes to things like the Kenora virus we would generally at this stage anyways just ignore those types of events and look at at short-term volatility as an opportunity to maybe fill positions in companies that were um, that are trading at a more attractive price when the market drops. Yeah, and, it, and if you look back and look at say the best performing stocks over the past twenty years on the Nasdaq, the New York Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, where you know you can encompass the SARS epidemic in, in that period, none of them would be driven by a, a, a SARS epidemic or anything. They were driven by, and you look at those businesses, they are just well-run, cash-producing, growing businesses. That is what has driven them. Not one single uh, event or healthcare scare or anything like that. Uh, and if you try to profit near-term off those type of events, you're often looking like maybe at a company like we look at here today, and uh, it has a short-term pop, and the underlying numbers aren't there, and then the stock can crater over time because if you do not have the underlying growth or even if they benefit from a one-time event that is going to be just a very short term event and likely by the time you've heard of that business the market has already reacted probably too positively and you're getting in at not the right time so we would avoid those short-term type speculations and show you that the best performers, the companies that you're really looking for, the Boyds, the Anschauses, all these great businesses that you want to own that can be absolute 
game changers for your portfolio are just driven by great underlying cash flow. It's really that simple. And that's why we invest and plan to invest going forward that way and position our clients going forward that way. So I'd like to thank Aaron and Brennan for our show this week, for co-hosting with me. Thank you for sending your questions into our Your Stock, Our Take segments. Uh, Keep your questions in to our Ask Anything segments too as well. We'll keep answering those questions and that's why we answered the question on the TFSA versus versus, uh, RSP question. We get questions on those all the time in our Ask Ask Us Anything uh, emails and uh, tweets. So... Thank you guys for hosting me with this week. And I wish everybody, our clients and our listeners, profitable investing. Profitable investing. Thank you.